People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Today's guest on Health Gig is John Wood. You may know him as a PGA caddy or as a course reporter for the NBC Golf Channel or maybe as an amateur wolf watcher or songwriter or Elvis fan, but he's a lot of things to a lot of people. And we are thrilled to have John with us here on Health Gig. Welcome, John. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited. We, we are so happy you're here and have been looking forward to having this interview with you. And we want to just begin by asking you a little bit about yourself, about where you come from and how you became a professional caddy. And then we're going to talk more about your career and how you've become an on-course commentator and all the interesting things about you. But just start by telling us a little about you and your family and anything you want to tell us. Growing up, I loved sports. Baseball was my first love. And then in high school, I really started getting into golf and um, kind of switched midstream in high school from baseball to golf. Played golf in high school, played golf for a little bit in college. And then I was kind of got burned out on it and really wasn't involved in golf. I'd play every once in a while with my friends, but I was managing a bookstore actually in Sacramento when one of my friends got his PGA Tour card and he was on tour for a year. He didn't really settle on a caddy. So his second year on tour, he asked me if I'd be interested in coming out and trying it. You know, I thought about it for a while and I, I thought, you know, I, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity, but I honestly thought I would go do it for a year or two and then get back to the real world and get a real job. And that was 26 years ago now. So I've avoided that this entire time. I caddied for Kevin Sutherland for seven years, and then I switched and worked for Hunter Mahan for nine years. We had a lot of success together. My last, well, my, pretty much my last bag was Matt Kuchar, and we worked together for seven years. And then two years ago, January, I had the opportunity to go into television. And Tommy Roy from NBC, the executive producer of NBC Golf, thought it would be a unique perspective to have a caddy talking about it rather than an ex-player. We talked and he offered me the job and I thought it was time. I, I was still enjoying caddying quite a bit, but you do something for 24 years. It felt like just time for a new challenge. So I took it and I've had a blast doing it. It was definitely the right choice for me. So that was two years ago and I'm really enjoying it. Who's been your favorite professional to caddy for? I've been really lucky. There are some guys out there who are very tough to work for. They're hard on their caddies. I have never experienced that. Kevin, you know, Hunter, Matt Kuchar, all fantastic to me, great families. It would be hard to pick out a favorite. Hunter and I probably had the most success. That was kind of the bulk of my career. I had more wins with Hunter. We made a lot of teams together, but I have not worked for a bad guy. So it'd be tough to pick out one guy. That famous video, it was the golfers and they were really <laughs> funny. Was Hunter one of them? Do you know what video I'm talking he about? He was, guys? yeah. It, it, it was him and Ricky Fowler. Yeah. Ben Crane and Bubba Watson, and they had this alter ego boy yeah. band called the Golf Boys. It was a bit of a sore subject with me because I thought it was a big distraction, but they had some fun with it, did a couple funny videos. I guess it was fun and goofy, but I, I just, it wasn't my cup of tea, shall we say. Why? Because you just thought it was just like taken away from what? It got to be a distraction on the course. People were yelling, you know, instead of talking about golf, they weren't yelling in a bad way. You know, they were talking a lot more about golf boys than they were about actual golf. I and see. I just felt like it took away his concentration a little bit. So as a caddy, is that a role for you? Kind of keeping the players focused? Absolutely. Yeah. 
golf's unique in that we're the only one that can help our players. A coach can't come in in the middle and say anything, a physical trainer, nobody can come in and say anything but us. So we kind of pay attention to everything in the camp. You know, what his swing coach is teaching him, if he has a sports psychologist, what they're working on. So we kind of take all that in and kind of decide when that needs to be used on the course. The Hunter had a great sports psychologist named Neil Smith, who uh, I listened to a lot and learned a lot from him. It was always, okay, well, I feel Hunter getting this way, a little distracted or a little tense. And there were always little things you could say to kind of get him back into where he needed to be to play his best golf. So, so did you have to meet as a team? Yeah. Like, so what did that look like? Is it, was it a weekly team meeting or? We only had one formal meeting a year. That was kind of the end of the year to kind of get everybody together and, and kind of review the year, decide what we were going to focus on for the coming year. Usually it was just his teacher and his sports psychologist were out every week, pretty much. So they'd follow around on the practice rounds, on the driving range. We'd talk after the rounds about what happened, what's working, what's not working. So it, it wasn't so formal, but it was definitely a daily occurrence when we were at tournaments. You often talk about how you love team sports and how the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup was extra special fun for you. Talk to us about that. Why do you like team sports? I love golf, but it is very much an individual sport. Week in, week out, it's you and your player, and that's it. We get in those team rooms, and all of a sudden, you've got 12 of the best players in the world, the best caddies, the captains, all pulling on the same rope. And you just don't get that, you know. It's such a unique experience to be out there playing a match and having Tiger Woods come up to you and give you a little pep talk or do something as little as, hey, you need something to eat, you know, those experiences and, and sitting in the team rooms at night talking over strategies. Hey, how do you guys approach this shot or this hole? It's just not something you get to do week in, week out. So when you get in those team rooms, it's the weeks I'll remember when I'm, you know, all done with golf and, you know, retired. Those weeks will be the most special for sure. Because everybody's together and everyone's everybody's thinking together. about how we're going to be. Yeah. You just don't get that opportunity week in, week out. I heard you say once that it's just you and the wife that yeah. are. <laughs> Dora yeah. is pretty. Tell Dora. Tell everybody. No, Dora, I used to say, you know, week in, week out. I'm rooting for my player. My player's rooting for my player. And my player's wife is rooting for my player. Yeah. And, and you've got your friends out there who you're pulling for here and there. And if you don't win, you'd like them to. But for the most part, it's a very small group that are really pulling for you to do something. Yeah, right. And the team sports are great because it brings the country together for something positive and good. And we need more of that for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. No question. We talked about this before the podcast, but my family's been also big supporters of these team sports. And you mentioned you were there when my brother came in and did a pep talk for the team. Yeah, I had a couple President's Cups I've met him and, and a, one Ryder Cup. And it's always just such a thrill, regardless of what side. It has nothing to right. do with where, where you are on the political spectrum at all. He's so good at bringing people together and giving you the big picture of what this means, because sometimes you get so wrapped up in being so insular and in what we're doing you forget about what it really means to everybody else who's watching. And he exactly. had a way of really communicating that. I get goosebumps just thinking about it, to be honest oh. with you. Those were special, special times to have him in the room. Oh, thank you. You know, it seems like the U.S. team has really seemed to kind of come together. They seem even more dedicated now to the Ryder Cup, and the President's Cup. Can you talk to us why you think that's happening? It's kind of been a change over the last five or six years from a certain generation to the younger guys. And I think the younger guys, for whatever reason, this past generation, they loved the Ryder Cup and they gave it their all, but it was still not the most important thing in their life. 
And that's totally understandable. But this new generation, when Jordan Spieth and Ricky Fowler, Justin Thomas, they came in with a totally new attitude that, you know, not to be crude, but we want to beat you guys and we want to beat you bad. It was, you know, very much a different, fresh attitude. Going back all the way to 2008 in Valhalla, there was a guy named Anthony Kim on the team, a very young guy who brought that attitude in and it had been missing from the U.S. team rooms. And so these last few teams have really been led by the younger guys. I felt their energy, their desire. It was a new experience to have that kind of energy in the team rooms and getting everybody fired up rather than just going out, playing your game, seeing if it was good enough. These guys came in and said, we aren't losing, period. I don't care what you have to do, but we aren't losing. It really goes to everybody on the team. It transfers, you know? That's yeah, so yeah. cool. They look like babies out there, really. <laughs> Some of Tell those, me about it. You know? Tell me about it. <laughs> Is there any player on the tour today that if he said or she said, John, I'd love to have you on the bag that you might say yes to? I would do it on a fill-in role on weeks that I wasn't commentating. And certainly if that happened, I would do it a week here or a week there. But I don't think full-time. I'm really enjoying what I'm doing now. If suddenly a 20-year-old Tiger Woods showed up, then maybe I'd, uh, I'd have to reconsider that. But right now, I'm really happy doing what I'm doing and have no plans to go back to caddying full-time. What do you love best about it? I love trying to figure out what is going to be necessary on this golf course. What do players need on this golf course? I love trying to get in the heads of the caddies and the players when they're making big decisions because I should know what they're talking about what goes into these decisions and maybe on a deeper level than people at home really know. You know, they hear maybe a yardage and they hear a club and they go, okay, that was simple. But it's not that simple. There's so many decisions that go into it, so many factors that go into those decisions that sometimes you're not even aware of or they may not even vocalize to each other. But as a caddy, I've been in those decisions and I know exactly everything they're talking about. So being able to communicate that to the home viewer is really exciting for me because I think it's a different level that people may not have realized how deep those decisions go, you know? Yeah, you have that unique perspective, which is amazing. Yeah. When you were a caddy and you saw what the golfer should do, one of the guys that you're carrying the bag for, and they didn't want to do it. How did you handle that? And what did you do? And now even as a commentator, do you go, oh my God. <laughs> Very rarely is there one specific shot that's right. Usually there's, there's a couple shots that you can play and they'll both turn out right if they're executed correctly. If we got into a situation where I just completely disagreed with what he wanted to do and I thought it was the wrong play, then I would need to have some reasons, something to back up why I thought what I thought. I couldn't just say, I feel this or I think this. I had to be able to say, here's why. You want to hit six iron here, but two holes ago, we hit seven iron. It went exactly this far. We're hitting the same direction because of the wind. It's going to be plenty of club. And when you have those kind of things to back up your decision, then it's easier to convince them. And trust goes into it a lot. When you've been with a player for a long time, and hopefully you've given him more good decisions than bad, he tends to trust you a little bit more, and you don't have to go so deep into the decisions. He knows you've done your homework. The other thing I tried to do sometimes, and I think I do this a little bit commentating when I'm talking to Justin Leonard or Paul Azinger, is sometimes you try and make it seem like it's their idea. You know, you, you ask, them a, yeah, ask them a question that leads them down a road that it kind of becomes their idea and their decision. And then it's kind of like, okay, I, I accomplished what I wanted here. It was non-confrontational and we're off for the races. So that's something I used to do a lot. And I think I do it commentating as well. 
What happens when you make a bad decision and <laughs> yeah, how question. do you shake it off? What do you do? <laughs> do you say, I'm sorry? You know, what do you yeah, do? You, you need to take full responsibility for it. You really do. Because even though he may know it's your fault and you know it's your fault, it's great to vocalize it, to tell him, I made a mistake. That was not on you. If a shot turns out bad, that can really knock a player's confidence and you can't play well without confidence. So you need to own up to it and say, that was my bad. Let's get back into things. Let's move forward. And I had, you know, some players are really hard on their caddies. And, and when a mistake happens, they can really get on their caddy. And I always felt like when I saw players doing that to their caddies, they're doing nothing but taking away their caddy's confidence. So the next time they're asked a question, they're hemming and hawing and maybe being a yes man. And it's a difficult place to be. But I always had players who, when I made a mistake, they accepted it and moved on. There was nothing they could say that was going to make me feel worse than I already did. Luckily, I had very nice players who moved on from them pretty quickly. And that's a philosophy that translates into life in general. A hundred percent. We should all own up to our mistakes. Yep. Did Matt Kuchar really not say bad words? Occasionally <laughs> one would slip through, but usually it was, oh, golly, or oh, gosh, or poop was a big one. Oh, poop. That, that was, uh, but, but uh, yeah, sure. He, he occasionally said it, but it was more under his breath than when he had to say that. Yeah. And you've had incredible other experiences like the Olympics. So can you talk to us about the Olympics and what happened to you there and how awesome that was? Boy, the Olympics was an amazing from the how we got into it to the last day was just incredible. The, the qualifying for it ended on a certain date and each country could have a total of four players, but no more. So on the last day of qualifying, Matt finished third in a tournament, which moved him up to 15th in the world. You had to be top 15 to be a pick on the U.S. team anyway, so he just got in there, but we still had players in front of us. Two of them decided not to go, which bumped us up into the fourth spot, so it didn't look like we were going to be able to go. And then when we went, it just blew away my expectations. I've always been a huge Olympics fan anyways. I remember going back to when I was really young. I just loved watching the Olympics. To actually be there on the U.S. team and helping somebody hopefully towards a medal was just more than I could even imagine. You know, Matt played amazing golf on the last day to go from, I think, 12th place all the way up to third and, and won a bronze medal, which was beyond thrilling. Any U.S. athlete who wins a medal gets a chance to give something away called the Order of Ecos Medallion. And it's basically given to a coach or somebody that was instrumental in them earning a medal. After all was said and done, I was thrilled beyond belief. I didn't expect anything more. The experience was more than enough for me, but Matt and uh, somebody from the USOC called me back up onto the 18th green after everything had settled down and presented me with this medallion. Oh, and uh, I lost wonderful. it. I, I, I was uh, <laughs> tearing up pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. One of my uh, most treasured possessions in terms of my career goes for sure. I bet. So you've played lots of courses and what is your favorite course and what is the toughest course? We just left St. Andrews for the Open Championship. And on paper, it's probably not my favorite golf course, but the whole atmosphere of being there at St. Andrews where golf started to be walking up that 18th and have people hanging out the windows because it is literally in the middle of a town. And it's such a special, special week. St. Andrews is one of my favorites. I love Olympic Club in, in San Francisco, Augusta National for the Masters. It's tough to beat that. It's such an obvious choice, but it's really tough to beat that one toughest course. It depends a lot on how they set it up. I would say Oakmont day in, day out. That place is just brutal. It's so hard. 
from the first shot to the last shot. There's no let up. There's no hole where you get to relax and say, okay, this one's an easy one. I can get past this one. It just feels like there's danger looming on every single shot you hit. So I would definitely say Oakmont is the hardest course I've ever been on. What did you think of the new blue course at Congressional? Loved it. I liked the old one as well, but how they opened up all the vistas, I thought made that course so much prettier. And I know it's weird to say when you take down trees, it makes something prettier, but it was always a great course, but it did feel a little claustrophobic in certain points because the trees were so encompassing. When they took those out, it just opened up these beautiful views. You could see the entire course. It made the actual turf, this is going to be a little inside baseball, but the turf on the golf course became incredibly fantastic. You used to have a lot of bare spots because of the lack of sun, but the greens and the fairways with this new look were just incredible. So I was a big fan of it. They toughened up the greens a bit, I would say, which is fine. I think as far as these guys hit the ball these days, they've got to look at different defenses for golf courses. And uh, I like what they did to the greens. I was a huge fan of it. Good report. That's good because it's very controversial. So it's <laughs> nice to hear you say that. You can't please everybody, right? Every, no, yeah. you can't. Yeah. John, you were talking about how you like to get in the heads of the players and all of that. So when you're prepping for each event, when you were caddying, even now, I guess, as a commentator, as a caddy, did you have to know what the other players were thinking or were you really just about your guy? I was just about my guy. Honestly, the preparation and the homework when I was caddying is probably easier than what I do now because before it was one guy. How does Matt Kuchar, how does Hunter Mahan best play this golf course? What are their strengths? Where can they use them? What are their weaknesses? But now I really prepare for everybody in the field because you just don't know who's going to play great and who you might be with on the weekend. So you got to figure out how does a long player play this course? How does a short, accurate player play this course? How does a great putter play this course? You know, luckily I, I have so many good friends still amongst the players and the caddies that if I'm out with a player that I know well and they're caddy well, I can call the caddy the night before and say, hey, what are you guys working on? Any strategies you're working on this week or what are you working on in the swing? Which I think helps the viewer, definitely helps me, but I think it helps the viewer to figure out what these guys are working on at the top level. Right. Because a lot of times it's the same things that 15, 18 handicappers are working on just at a different level. Right, right, right. That makes sense. So with your on-course job that's taking you around the world and around the globe, how do you take care of yourself now? For a long time when I was caddying, I treated every week out like it was kind of that vacation mindset. And it really wasn't because it was my job and I was on the road for 28 weeks a year. But you know that vacation mindset when you're thinking, I can eat this, I'm on vacation or Uh I can, I can do this. I'm on vacation. I can have, you know, a couple beers at night, but About 10 years in, I really started thinking about I was in horrible shape. I didn't feel good. And, you know, I thought this is not vacation. This is, uh, you know, a big part of my life. And to do this job well, I need to get in better shape. At that point, I really started eating better on the road, working out more at home, even working out on the road, which I don't do as much of anymore. I need to get started again. It really became really obvious to me that all of a sudden I felt better. I felt more confident. I was sleeping better. Once I realized, got that vacation mode out of my head and figured this is my job. And once I got that going, I I really took care of myself a lot better. You know, I, I make sure to, when I do get off the road or I do have a day off, not necessarily rush into a lot of activities. There's so many things I enjoy to do, but a lot of times I would come home and just jump into them too much. And by the time I'd go back on the road, I had no rest whatsoever. Nowadays, when I get off the road, I always take two or three days where I'm uh, Uber Eats is on 
fast dial, quick dial for me. So <laughs> I, I don't, you know, have to go out. Um, I kind of sit at home and read and watch TV, play guitar. And then after a couple of days, I get back into things that I like to do. But one of the things that being on the road has afforded me has been, I love history. I love seeing new things and the places that I've been lucky enough to go to and the people I've met and the things that I've been able to see just because of this job, it's been overwhelming. And, and, you know, when I look back on some of the things I've gotten to do, it's just beyond belief. Very lucky. Like kind of living history, you know, it's Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I guess at the, when you were in St. Andrews and you talked about how you texted Tiger and then he answered you back, do you yeah. text with the players much or with Tiger or were you surprised that he texted you back or did you know he, he he's usually <laughs> pretty good? You know, I, I don't, bother him. I know he probably gets millions of texts. So, you know, I only text him when it's, you know, I want to say congratulations on something or something that I saw he did. That was an interesting one because I wanted to know for myself how he's the greatest mental player who's ever played the game. He's just stronger. And I wanted to know what he would be thinking going into that round. And it was really for me, I wanted to know, and I wasn't planning on bringing it up on the air, but I asked him and he was fine with me bringing it up on the air and saying it came from him. And I think that added to the broadcast a lot to know what, what Tiger would be thinking in these situations. And I know he'll never do it, but gosh, if Tiger ever decided he wanted to do TV as an analyst, it would be the most incredible. Oh God, it would just be a dream because he's smart in general, but he's so golf smart. It's unbelievable. That was a great piece of information that he gave to me and was kind enough to let me use. So what about the new tour? Can you talk about that at all and tell us what you're thinking or what's up with that? Or uh, we, don't I mean, we don't very, have to talk about it. We don't have to talk very, very easily. I'm not a fan. Golf has always been a sport to me that you have to earn it every year. You have to earn it. Everybody starts at zero every year. I think that's the way golf is meant to be played. When you're paid all this guaranteed money and you're only playing three rounds and there's no cut, I just don't think it's good for golf. I think the competition suffers. I think it's splintering the game in a way that is not good for the fans at all. It's really going to affect Ryder Cups and President's Cups if it keeps moving forward. This is me only. I'm not denigrating anybody who makes a choice, but where that money comes from, I have a real problem with. To just accept that, and one of the main guys from the RNA said at the open, there's no free lunch. And this kind of feels like a free lunch. I'm just not a fan. I hope the PJ Tour combats it to a degree. You know, eventually it goes away. That, that would be my hope, but uh, just not a fan. It's all start. I think you said somewhere along the line, like if things had changed for Greg Norman, it wouldn't have even happened. I don't know if I should have said that or not, but in my opinion, you know, Greg has kind of had an anti-tour attitude, I think, for quite some time. You know, it's unfortunate, but I, I think had he a couple of things turned out for him differently in his career, maybe this wouldn't have happened at all. But that's pure conjecture. I don't know that at all. Just a feeling I had. I wish people could see you. And the reason I say that is because I'm looking at three or four guitars <laughs> and I don't know what else is in that picture. But you are a musician. Is that a drum? A, are you a drummer too? That would be generous. I have a drum set <laughs> and I do hit it. But to call myself a drummer is a stretch. And you also write poetry. So is this something you do when you're off the road or tell us about your interest in music and poetry? Yeah, tell us about, yeah, what, what do you do? Always been a specific. massive, huge, music has been my favorite thing my whole life. I mean, other than sports, you're going to be shocked. But when I was seven years old, 
I made my parents take me to an Elvis Presley concert in Tacoma <laughs> <laughs> because I, every time I had any money, I would go to this drugstore and buy an Elvis record. Wow. Um, so I was going back that long. <laughs> and I've always been had friends who were musicians and, and were in bands. And I never really made the leap to try and do it myself until, gosh, probably 15, 20 years ago, I started figuring it out and trying to play myself. And I would say I'm great, but definitely enough to entertain myself and have a great time with it. And then um, I started similar thing to, to writing songs. I just sat down one day and said, well, let me see if I can write a song. I know I can play. A lot. I, I know a lot of other songs, wow. but let me see if I can actually write a song. And I'm not saying it came easily, but it came a lot easier than I thought it would. It was a huge jump for me to realize that I could do this. It's just something that it's great for my mind to kind of figure out these things. I do actually, I play a lot when I'm home. I do travel with a small guitar as well to play in the room. Just kind of, I found myself getting back to the hotel at night and getting on the computer or just clicking on the TV and zoning out. So I started traveling with a guitar on the road. So I do that a lot more. And That's it's just great. a, a real love of mine. So I love that. Wow. And people can hear your music. I do have a SoundCloud page with uh, a few <laughs> of the songs I've written up there. Yeah. Have you yes. seen the new Elvis movie? I did. My mom and I went a few weeks ago, right before I went to the open and it's phenomenal. Oh, Absolutely great. phenomenal. I mean, like I said, I've been a huge Elvis fan my whole life. And there are times where you're looking at this kid going, is that real footage or is that Elvis? Because he's so good in this role. They did a really good job of it. I loved it. Oh, I haven't seen it. Dora, have you seen it? Not yet. I'm going okay. to. Highly recommend yeah, it. Even oh, if you're good. not a huge Elvis fan, it's a great story, you know? Yeah. And they don't focus on, you know, one aspect. It's kind of they focus on Elvis the person. And, and uh, I thought that was really cool. I think this is a good point to talk about some of your other passions in life. I know that you and Trisha have been discussing your interest in the wolves. So tell us how you got involved in the wolf projects. It's a great story. Another one where as an adult, if I got invited to a dinner party or a party or some kind of get together, my first question was always, do you have dogs? That made it a yes instantly. And I'd constantly be out in the backyard playing with the dogs instead of mingling with the other people. So I've always loved dogs that kind of transferred into wolves. I started reading about wolves, you know, a long time ago, everything I could get my hand on. And I always had it in my head that I wanted to go to Yellowstone and see the wolves once they reintroduced them in 94. I always had it in my head that it was going to be this huge plan. I would have to get a guide and organize this and organize that. And I kept putting it off and putting it off. And finally, I just decided that this is ridiculous. I'm going to just go through all my camping gear in my truck, drove 13 hours to Yellowstone, slept for about an hour in my car, drove out to Lamar Valley and set up my scope. And within an hour, saw the entire Junction Butte pack walking right in front of me, a half mile right across Lamar Valley. The second you see a wild wolf, it changes you. I don't know why, but it changes you. And immediately it was like, this is all I want to do. This is all I want to do is come out here and watch. You know, ever since then, I go mostly in the, in the fall and winter, early spring. The crowds are easier to handle and the wolves actually flourish more. They're easier to see in the wintertime with the snow covering. And so I usually go that time of year, but every time I get a chance, I head up there just to watch them hear stories about the packs. You know, we were talking about Rick McIntyre, who is the dean of wolf watching. He's watched wolves <laughs> more than anybody in the history of the world. And he's, he's got a new book coming out that we're lucky to get a, an advanced copy of to meet Rick out there, who's out there every day. But you start to get to know the packs and you start to get to know individual wolves 
And the wolf watching community out there is so special. It's similar to a like a, a Ryder Cup team in that everybody's in the same boat. Everybody wants to help these wolves, not just the Yellowstone wolves, but the wolves outside the park who are being hunted and, and sadly trying to be eliminated in a lot of areas again. But to get to know Rick, you know, this is kind of how Trish and I got to know each other is through a guide who works for the Wolf Project named Taylor Bland. I met Taylor probably my second trip there, and we've become really, really good friends. We talk or text a lot about what she's doing, what she's seen, what's going on in the wolves and the packs. And then every time I get to go there, we end up finding each other on the side of the road and end up spending, you know, days, day long together, you know, and, and it's, it's so interesting to hear her stories, her and Jeremy, who's kind of the lead of the wolf project at this point, Maddie Jackson as well. It's just so fun being around them, listening to their histories, what they know. It's like being in a classroom for free. It really is. So and if, cool. you, if you love these wolves, what you get to see with a decent scope, it's hard to describe how thrilling it is. Yeah. Just the, the simple play sessions, playing with the pups, seeing different wolves interact with each other, how some get along well, how some don't get along well. Everyone has their own individual personality. And to see how much they care for each other inside their own pack to watch him go out on hunts and you know it's not that's not for everybody because it, you know it, you are taking an elk's life or a bison's life and it's not something you think about as great but you know that they're <laughs> they're really it. keeping those herds strong because they only take the weakest ones out the old or the sick to know that taking those out of those packs actually strengthens the packs out there and to watch them cooperate and work together on a hunt it's something you can't describe until you've actually seen it in person it's something that I didn't think I'd ever be able to see in real life and to be able to go every time now and, and usually see at least a couple hunts. Other than uh, my job and music, it's probably it's my favorite thing to do in the world is to go watch wolves. Can you share with everybody how it's a matriarch society and tell us some stories about that? There's usually a pair of alphas in every pack, a male and a female. And everybody kind of thinks, well, the male alpha is the true leader. And that's not the truth at all. It is the females who make the decisions in the packs. There'll be times when you'll be sitting there watching a pack and they rest most of the day. They'll hunt at night, hunt in the morning until around, gosh, 10 or 11. And then they kind of just, they settle down. They take a long nap during the day, get up again, you know, an hour, hour and a half before dusk and start getting together again. But when they're laying there and they start to get up, one will get up and they stretch and they stretch just like the, your dogs do at home. They'll get up, walk in a circle and lay right back down like your dog at home. <laughs> but it's, it's so fascinating to watch because sometimes you'll see the alpha male get up and he looks like he's ready to go. Like he's ready to go hunt, get something started. And he'll take a few steps away and a few heads will pop up and look at him. And then he'll take a few more <laughs> steps and look back and nobody will have moved. They're still looking at him. He'll take a few more steps and nobody's moved and he'll just give up and come back and lay back down. But then the alpha female gets up and takes 15 steps away and suddenly the entire pack is up and ready to go. Let's go follow her. They have a lot more on their mind in terms of having knowing they have to take care of pups and take care of yearlings. I think they have maybe a better instinct in terms of when it's time to hunt, where to go to hunt. And what's fascinating during hunts is the females usually lead the charge. They are faster than the males because they're smaller. A lot of times the females will separate the one elk they deem as slower or maybe has a, a limp or a bad leg. They will take charge of the sprint towards them to pick one out. And usually only 
after they've picked one out, do the males come in and usually go for the kill? You know, the female will come in, get a hold on a leg or slow it down. And then the males will come in because they are bigger and have stronger jaws. And they'll come in a lot of times for the kill. But the females usually lead the hunts. Rick McIntyre's latest book is on a wolf named 06, who was born in 06. And her life story is just incredible how strong this wolf was as an individual. She ended up starting her own pack and ended up having a very successful pack, but she lived by herself for a long time. And this one female wolf was able to take down elk on her own, which usually it's a five or six wolf job, you know, to slow them down. That, wow. That's an incredible, incredible story. The other story that I love is there was a wolf 42 and 42 was a very benevolent leader. She only got become an alpha because her sister was 40 and was a very mean wolf. That was her personality. She ruled by aggression. She ruled by dominance. And that was the only way she knew how. And she was constantly picking on her sisters and other females in the pack. What was interesting was the alpha was a wolf named 21, who was also very benevolent, led by example, wasn't going to force anything, never killed another wolf, would win battles with other packs, but never killed another wolf. And one evening, 40 went what Rick and, and most wolf watchers thought was going to 42's den to kill her pups. She had had a litter that spring. And finally, 42 and another of her sister two had had enough. And they basically took over and ended up killing 40. And 42 became the leader. That began a true romance, I think, between 21 and 42. <laughs> they led so this pack wrong. They meant so much to each other. And um Rick's uh, The Reign of 21 tells that story between 21 and 42, another great book to get. It's just incredible. So yeah, the females, to get back to your original question, they're basically the leaders. They make the decisions. I kind of wish that uh, we would take more of that route as, <laughs> yeah. as human beings. I think we might be in a better place. Yeah. I love the stories. <laughs> I mean, Trisha introduced me to the wolves and I just think it's fascinating, but I don't think people are aware of what happened to Yellowstone when the wolves were eliminated. Can you talk about that and how important yeah. reintroduction was? Obviously, Teddy Roosevelt started this national park, which is an incredible idea. In the 1920s, the powers that be, whether they be rangers or somebody else, thought that people were coming just to see the land, just to see the elk and the bison. And they thought predators were stopping that, were killing that, and people wouldn't want to see that thing. So they basically, in 1926, they, they killed the last wolf in Yellowstone. They didn't have wolves for 70-something years and, until 1994 when they reintroduced them. But what happened, and they didn't really consider this, was all of a sudden you take away an alpha predator. All of a sudden, the elk herds and the bison herds got huge. They had nobody culling their herds. They just got uncontrollable. So there's nobody taking them out. They had no predators. So they were just comfortable to go wherever they wanted, whenever they wanted. And it basically ruined the landscape. There was no grasses left because the herds got so big, the grasses were gone. Where there were huge strands of trees before, they would go away because they would never get the opportunity to grow past a certain point because the elk and the bison would come and eat it. When that started to happen, the river started to collapse because there wasn't the grass and the trees and the bush to hold up those riverbanks. So they would start to collapse, changing routes of rivers. That meant that beavers went away. All of a sudden, there weren't any beavers anymore because the rivers were collapsing. Songbirds went away because there were no trees for them anymore. So it was just this avalanche of things that happened that nobody really considered when you took away the main predator. So when they brought wolves back in a relatively short time, they started seeing 
major changes. These trees started growing taller again. You know, there was a long time when every year they were culling elk and bison, you know, and this wasn't publicized, but they had to take hundreds, hundreds out every year because their herds were just too big. So when they brought them back, all of a sudden, those herds started getting back into a manageable size. They didn't have to call anymore. The grasses started growing more. The trees started growing more. The beavers came back because the rivers now were more predictable. The songbirds came back. It was a cascade of things that they never really thought of when they just got rid of them. They've called the, the reintroduction of wolves at Yellowstone the greatest wildlife restoration in the history of the world. And uh, when you see them now, it's hard to think anything could have gone better than, than what happened. It really is amazing. And the people that are attracted to it, as you said, are incredible. And to watch, as you say, people gather together to really help the wolves, to learn the wolves. And you can't help but not feel the interconnectedness of everything when you're out there. So it is amazing. Yeah, they're very familial. I've read Diane Fossey and Jane Goodall, and that stuff's incredible. But when you literally look at a human society and how a family or a group is supposed to work and you watch a pack of wolves, that to me is the most similar analogy you can make between humans and watching a wolf pack, how they care for each other. One of the only mammals in the world when if a mother is killed or dies, usually males will step in and kill their offspring so they can all of a sudden have their own doesn't happen in wolf society. They take over those pups and raise them knowing how important they're going to be for the pack in the future as far as hunting and having more pups in the future with the females. So it's so an incredible amazing. society to watch. Yeah. Like you said, and the committed relationships are amazing. They tell them how she died and then he went up to find her and then stayed there. It's so, oh my God, Dora, we'll cry. 42 <laughs> passed away. They actually got in a, a fight. I believe it was with Molly's pack. I'm not hundred percent sure on that. 21 was out on a hunt when these two packs clashed and they ended up killing 42. So he came back from the hunt, no 42. Didn't know where the fight had taken place, didn't know where anything was. She was just gone and he didn't know why or how or where she was. So he didn't have that opportunity to see her and smell her and realize that she had passed away. So for weeks and months, uh, this is Rick oh, McIntyre telling the story. Looking. He would constantly be looking for, howling oh. for these really long plaintive howls. You couldn't be mistaken for anything else other than looking for 42. Uh, um, obviously, she never came back. I think he probably realized she was gone. The next mating season, he actually took on another mate um, and had one more litter, but it just it wasn't, wasn't the, same the same wolf. And one day, Rick said that we were just watching the, the wolves in the middle of the day and 21 got up, let out a howl, single howl, and just kind of walked off. And Rick thought it was a little strange, but you know, not unheard of. It was just a little strange and never saw 21 again. And they've picked up a mortality signal from his collar. He was a collared wolf. It gets to a mortality signal. It will just be a constant fast beep. So when it hasn't moved for a certain amount of time, I think Rick and a couple of the wolf project people hiked up and found 21 in this meadow by these trees where he, he knew 21 and 42 had spent a lot of time together uh -huh. raising pups. Rick just, just thinks that he knew it was his time to go and he wanted to be in a special, memorable place for him where he spent a lot of his time with 42. And it's a beautiful, beautiful love story. He it died really of a is. broken heart. Yeah, yeah. He was an old wolf too. Wolves in, in Yellowstone tend to live to be four or five years old and they're usually the main cause of death is by other wolves, other wolf packs. I believe 21 got to be nine or 10 years old and 42 was nine as well. So it was a long life together. Obviously, lots of memories. 
God, John, it is the same skill, right? I mean, you get in the heads of the players. Now you're in the heads of the wolves. <laughs> it's like a thing. <laughs> like I'd love just... to be in, in the minds of wolves. That would be amazing. <laughs> it's true, though. I mean, as you said, it's weird, the people that the wolves attract and how it all works out. John, yep. have you written songs about the wolves or songs about the Ryder Cup or, or songs poetry. about your Olympic weather, poetry about I your Olympic medal? Anything, nothing about <laughs> golf. I have started a couple about wolves. It just it wasn't the place where I wanted it to go. And I didn't want to do just some generic thing just to do it. <laughs> so it's there. It's I know it. That's, I know there's a good one inside yet. me. It's just uh, it'll decide when it's ready. And then show Dora your tattoo. Dora, look, it's a wolf. See, can you see that? OK. Oh, how beautiful okay? is that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He said That's that neat. he got it and he had to hide it from his mom. What, you got it when you were like 40? Yeah, I got my first <laughs> tattoo at 45 years old and wore long sleeves around my mom for about six months. And she loves it. She ended up loving it. But uh, it was still that. Oh, my God, my mom, my mom. <laughs> She likes it, so I'm okay. Oh, my God. Well, thank you for this conversation. Yes, thank you. And carving out so much time to be with us. We so appreciate it. My yes, pleasure. I had a great time. You guys had great questions. And anytime, I'd be happy to come back. And then oh, you my could God. tell the story about Gimpy. Yeah. Do you want to quick tell it? I mean, do a way to hear about Gimpy. There's a story of this male wolf in Yellowstone who basically had a, an injured paw. And, and it, I think it got caught in a trap once he escaped and went back to be a wild wolf and was in a pack for a while. Didn't hurt him at all. Wolves have an amazing way. They can't feel sorry for themselves. They don't care if they have an injured foot or it doesn't matter to them. It just yeah. this is the way I am. And who cares? I still have to eat. I still have to help every else hunt. And so Gimpy decided one year he wanted to have a mate and you can't really take over as an alpha unless an alpha dies. So he left his pack at Yellowstone. They didn't know where he went for the longest time, ended up getting signals from him from way south in Colorado and thought that can't be the same wolf. And sure enough, it was. And he became this famous wolf named Gimpy because here he is by himself looking for a mate on three legs, wow. traveling thousands and thousands of so miles. Like ends all up over looking for the love of his life. <laughs> so sweet. All <laughs> over and could hunt enough by himself to, to survive on three legs. Oh. Eventually ended up finding a mate and had his own pack and oh, litter. Good. Rick says it best. They love life so much. They can't imagine giving up on something. And I, I think that's a great way to look at things. You've given us a lot to think about today. Know, so, John, <laughs> thank you. Yes. My pleasure, guys. A lot of fun. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>